0: You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenda. Uh, this week, I learned that um, Cleopatra uh, was actually lived closer in time to the moon landing than to uh, when the Great Pyramids at Giza were built. No, oh,
1: that, that is actually pretty pretty interesting. That's cool. Um, anyway, how you been doing this week? I've been good, thank you. I. Some you know sometimes we record on Wednesdays, but I could not record last night because I was at a Weird Al Yankovic concert. Whoa! Did, yeah, did he did the classics. No, he didn't. No. It was actually it's a very different tour. Uh, for okay. the first time in his career, I guess a, a year or two ago, he you know was getting into his fat suit and doing his whole thing and his yeah. costume changes and just kind of went, "Why am I still doing this?" And so he wanted to do a tour that was just his original songs okay. and not the parodies. So this whole it was very different. My my son wanted to go, and I've seen him before. He's a great performer. I, yeah. I love him. And uh, so it was a, it was different than his other ones. Uh, but at the end, he did a few a few classics, but in different styles, like different musical oh, styles. Oh, cool! And it was yeah, it was actually a, a really really good show. And, Uh, i think that's
0: fun fun. that's that's one of the the ways where you can really see his his talent uh is is how versatile is he is in different genres um yeah yeah uh, that's really great Okay, okay so um i've got some interesting news um so um just you know kind of peeking behind the the curtain here a little bit um we're you know trying to set things up and and uh you had something come up at just the last minute so you kind of pushed me back about 15 minutes i used that time effectively and went through and updated my little spreadsheet of of how many listens that we get on the w podcast uh-huh. so um you know going back we started this whole adventure way back in september of 2013 uh is when the first episode went live we recorded it in august but um at the conference but uh um, yeah hard to believe it's been been that long, but um that month we uh, we we were still under a thousand listens um, for the month, but it was a you know decent start and by uh, May of the next year, we had climbed above two thousand listens for the first time. We kind of leveled off, getting between two and three thousand listens uh, every month, but during our hiatus. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the numbers and go, whoa! In October of 2017, we almost got up to 6,000 listens. Oh. Um, that, was the, that was right after posting that interview with Anya Einzel. Mm. And then in uh, uh, January of this year, we hit 8,000 listens in just one month. That, that is crazy. What, what is going on? Uh, what is, that's a good question. So I really think that the, the Anya Eintel interview was uh, was a big hit with a lot of people. And um, I get the feeling that some of our latent print folks that are regular loyal listeners uh, spread the word on that one and got it out to some of the you know, QA people or some of the other uh, disciplines that are interested in the accreditation side of things. And that's what kind of got those numbers up but in january i'm like what's going on in january i mean that's that that's some um big numbers there and what <laughs> i think what happened is uh, uh i'm not sure if uh, i haven't talked about this with you but uh, there's a another podcast you had mentioned the uh the uh, minnesota podcast ladies um last yes. week
1: and and i and i i know where you're going with this because i just found out from someone about this today really but, just not, today yeah just today and i went <laughs> what, what are you talking about? I, I, but anyway, look,
0: share the story, and then I'll tell you my follow up with this. Got it. So um, this is almost two years ago now. I got an email um, from a, a producer of, of a, a podcast called uh, "This Is Criminal," and it's kind of a it's kind of an NPR-ish kind of podcast where they talk about all sorts of different stuff. Sometimes crime stories, sometimes other stuff. Um, and uh, the the email asked, hey, do you do you know anything about um, the uh, the Rojas case down in Argentina in 1892? And I was like, yeah, I, you know, I know some stuff. So I did that, and they said they'd let me know, send me an email when it was ready to um, to be uh, broadcast. I said okay, and so I kind of kept checking back, and time went by, and I kind of forgot about it and stopped checking. And all of a sudden in January one morning, I get these, I get all of a sudden just a wave of emails of people saying, oh, hey, I heard you on the, the Criminal podcast. I listen to that every week. It's great. And I'm like, oh, oh. so <laughs> so they have finally uh, edited it all together and put out um, a, an episode. So, I, you know, I, I plugged the podcast and um, our podcast, and I think just, you know, people that listen to Criminal kind of follow some links around and found our page and, and uh, listen to a few episodes so um, I think I think maybe we're on to something here with this cross pollinization of uh, somewhat related podcasts like I said last week um, <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah we can get we can uh, definitely we can climb on and grab some more listeners so well so this is just crazy that you would bring this up because
1: right you you wouldn't know this at all but um, <laughs> I last week we talked about getting Alicia Wilcox on. We've confirmed she's going to come on next week, and she said, "Oh yeah, I had a chance to hear uh, uh, hear about your podcast on you know uh, Criminal." And I went, "What are you talking about?" And said, "Oh yeah, no when when Eric and I thought she was referring that they had referred to one of our podcasts, maybe the Making of the Murderer or the OJ right, right. one, which were some of the more popular ones that we did." And and she's like, No, Eric went on a podcast and he was he he referenced the double loop podcast. That's how that's how she had heard about it. she hadn't heard about the oh. podcast except from Criminal, which was crazy to me. <laughs> a latent print examiner heard about it from some other source. Right. And, th- and then I went, Well, oh, he never said anything to me about it. And so I, I didn't know what she was talking about, but you know, I I thought that was pretty funny that she had literally brought that up today.
0: Yeah. Um um I had every, you know, uh plan to kind of mention it to you and to our audience when they'd sent me the send me the follow-up email saying, you know, it's going to be out next week. I just yeah. never got that <laughs> that email, but if you haven't uh heard of this podcast, um I believe the website is just uh, thisiscriminal.com. If you go back to uh it looks like it was posted uh, January 11th of 2018. Uh, the episode is called like a page from a book and i'm i'm glad (laughs) it's it's helping spread our little podcast too yeah that's that's really cool congrats so all right well um you ready to jump into our topic today indeed all right i'm raring to go because i got some stuff to say about this um (laughs) (laughs) eric's fired up hell yeah uh, okay, so we're looking at a paper um, or an article called uh, "Using the PCAST Report to Exclude, Limit, or Minimize Experts" by Eric Alexander Voss from uh, Criminal Justice uh, Summer Up Edition 2017. <sighs> oh man, Glenn. Um, well, the 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 title the title sounds promising. <laughs> well, I mean, you can kind of tell where it's going from there, but. Um, you know even just seeing the title is this guy yeah okay let's see what he has to say but man did I get fired up reading through this thing
1: it, it, well yeah All right, so let's, let's, let's describe it a little yes. bit it's, it, it's an article that is aimed at, it's written by a lawyer and aimed at lawyers Yes, and it's a four part strategy for lawyers to exactly as the title says minimize, exclude, or limit your experts in some way so it's it sets up all the the strategies that, and steps I need to go through in four parts on how to um, you know. Um, uh, At worst, exclude your testimony At best minimize your uh, or demean or lower the impact of your testimony for for a juror. And and it's written by, as you said, Eric Alexander Voss, who is a chief public defender at Federal Public Defender's Office. And uh, this caught me off guard. Uh, I wasn't expecting this for the District of Puerto Rico. Yeah, and you know it's an English written article, but um, and uh, as you said, it's in this criminal justice magazine for attorneys. All right, well, why don't we go through since you are emotional? Step number one: <laughs> emotional necessity. Well, Want even to talk but,
0: about that a little bit. Even let me back up a little bit, uh, even before sure. that. But yes, that that's that's the step one here. But um, I, I think a good summary is this paragraph uh, right before that. Uh, it just says the PCAST report should be employed in a four-step process. First, create an emotional need for the judge to adopt the findings of the report. Second, go for outright preclusion of the government's expert witness. Third, if outright preclusion fails, get the court to significantly limit what the expert may testify to. Finally, if both preclusion and limitation fail, the PCAS report should be used to show the trier of fact how unreliable, unscientific, and untrustworthy the alleged expert opinion is. Right.
1: And and let's let's be clear. This is not aimed solely at fingerprints. This is aimed no. at basically, multi, if you read this, all forensic testimony. Well, yes,
0: all well, all <laughs> expert testimony. Even I mean, it's yeah. it does paint a a very broad brush, uh, going even beyond what is mentioned in the PCAST report. Um, right. And uh, you know, even uh, the very beginning here. I mean, that's that's a that's a. That's a, you know a very good summary paragraph of what's to come, but Agreed. even before that, in the in the you know, more of a setup paragraph, uh, you can see the the author's mindset in some of the words he chooses here. Uh, how um, the how experts are uh, the deadliest weapon of the prosecutor's arsenal. Uh, how we have to turn the tables and play offense. A, a, a very Adversarial. Adversarial, confrontational, battle strategy uh, mindset. Right, and we're caught in the middle of that wonderful battle. Oh, yeah, isn't that fun? Uh, so, yes, emotional necessity. It's, it's uh, no use for you, Mr. Defense Attorney, uh, this is what the author is saying, uh, to rely on logic, facts, or law. You must play to the judge's emotional uh, side in order to start, um, you know, helping out your client by getting this uh, this unscientific, uh, untrustworthy, and unreliable um, testimony uh, you know, removed or minimized to some extent uh, in trial.
1: Yeah, and and it goes on to say and and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I mean, I appreciate where they're coming from here. It just reminds me a lot of when you're in grade school learning about, you know, writing techniques, you know, it'll say something along the lines of, you know, you got to start with, you know, something that's eye-catching, something that grabs the audience's attention. Basically, they, <laughs> he says the same thing here. He says, all motions must immediately begin like a good New Yorker article. They must capture the reader's attention, create emotional responses, and insist That only one outcome makes sense. Immediately means the first sentence and not the third page. This is him saying, don't bury the lead. Come right out and say, it is your duty, Your Honor. You must exclude this evidence. Don't try to make a logical, legal argument and make that your final thing. Lead with, this is junk science and should not be allowed in the
0: courtroom. And if you allow it, you are not doing your duty as gatekeeper. Reading from this, even right now... People unfamiliar with the PCAST report, uh, you know, th- this first page here that, you know, the PCAST report absolutely eviscerated every possible aspect of forensic science by calling it these things, but calling it unreliable, unscientific, untrustworthy and that it just fails uh, from the PCAST report, it fails every kind of test of science. So, let's go back, I mean I went back earlier today and, and started reading through finding um, snippets, or looking for snippets like this from the PCAST report. The PCAST report does not Refer to any of this as junk science. That word just term isn't used anywhere in the report. It's not called untrustworthy or not trustworthy at all. The the wording that uh, Voss is taking here is his own and is not from the PCAST report. In fact, it, we're going to get into more latent print stuff here that they refer to specifically, but PCAST uh, comes out and says specifically. Latent print analysis is a foundationally valid subjective methodology. The emotional necessity that he's describing here, and the uh, the disdain that that he's describing, PCAST having for forensic science, is just made up. It's not actually present in the PCAST report to the extent that he's uh, that he's describing it here. Yeah. No,
1: I, I I'd say it's very. That, that's a good analysis. It's um, he, but. You know, he says the same thing in his own way here is that you can't just be timid about this. And in a way, he's making his own emotionally charged argument leading with, well, this is all junk science and crap. I don't – this is the one thing with defense attorneys. I realize that their job is to vigorously and to zealously defend their, defend their client. Their yeah. client. I, I totally get that. But the thing that I always wonder is do they really believe it? I mean if, if you get them aside, get them drunk, get, get talking to them <laughs> – do they really believe it, or are they just disingenuously, you know, representing a view that they they have to because they're, you know, they 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 have to give this aura that that's what they believe when in fact they really don't. It's the thing that I always struggle with. Most of them are fairly practical, I find, and you know, and they're just it's just part of their their defense approach. But he he, it, it, I can't separate the two in this. It really truly seems like he
0: thinks that all. Forensic science is junk science. Yeah, on, on the second page, he's, he's talking about, don't recite the case history of Daubert or Kumho Tire. Right. Um, go after it,
1: right? The NRC and PCAST reports have eviscerated the quote-unquote science
0: of fingerprint analysis. Again, let me quote PCAST. Fingerprint analysis is a foundationally valid subjective methodology. yeah, yeah. I, uh, Yeah, I'm with you. No, I'm with you. Where's the evisceration here, you know?
1: It's it's through the lens, and so I have to put that in context. This is passing through his lens. But, I mean, a couple sentences after that he says, beyond this plethora of junk science, he says, basically, you have to spend your first paragraphs... Creating an emotionally charged story Of your client's suffering And how he has mistakenly been charged With crimes in question And at the very least If mistaken innocence are unavailable Interesting We must devise a compelling and emotionally charged narrative Which demands the judge Take junk science's thumb Off the scales of justice I mean, okay, so we understand he, he is creating what he is basically recommending to his colleagues, creating an emotionally charged story, which is exactly what he's doing in this. He's setting up right, an emotionally charged story about forensic science. The only thing I will say is uh, – and it's, it's the advice I often give to defense attorneys – If you buy into that story and you're not good at selling that story, if you get an expert like you or me or someone in the courtroom who actually knows this stuff and can start laying down the studies, you are going to find that your waters are pretty shallow very, very quickly. And this is the disingenuity that I try to tell defense attorneys. And this is why I like the Brendan Max defense attorney approach is know this stuff real well. Know where the real limits are. If you just cast such a broad swath of, oh, well, PCAST calls it junk science. And, Eric, you turn around and, and cite from PCAST and throw out articles and they just keep coming. Right, uh, It's not a good strategy. It's it, It's a – it is an easily defeated strategy because you remove their veneer of their emotional argument and then what are you left with so uh I, mr voss i we hear what you're saying um we understand this is one approach uh, i i would rather them
0: have accurate knowledge than emotional knowledge well yes and that's that's our job here and clearly he sees his job as as um Uh, providing this emotional context to make for the judge and the jury later is what he's describing to make emotional decisions uh as he clearly states not based on fact but on emotion Um, especially if your client's not innocent (laughs) <laughs> I do love that. I love that
1: caveat. <laughs>
0: wow. Right. Okay. Um, well, I mean, come on. It's it's, it's the defense I mean, that, you're right. right. That's their job. So once you once you lay that emotional foundation, then step two, go go right for the the gut, right for the middle, getting the opinion precluded, uh, so that the expert can't testify.
1: Right. So, win a Daubert challenge, win a Fry challenge, get the evidence excluded, so it, the jury will never even
0: hear the opinion. Absolutely. You know, the PCast lays that basic foundation for the stuff that's most ripe for attack. But uh, hey, you can go further than that. You can attack any kind of forensic expert di- or expert discipline that you want. So, and, and, as you're as you're pointing out. You know, it, it's,
1: it says, go after the ones that are, of course, in the PCAST report. And it says that these are the ripest for attack, including complex mixture DNA, bite marks, latent fingerprints, firearms, and footwear identification hair analysis. Which, I mean, it doesn't put the caveat, hey, you know, actually fingerprints does okay in this. I mean, it just lumps them all together. And then afterwards says, and if it's even not one of those... Well, PCAST lays out a strategy for basically any feature comparison method approach, which is basically any forensic technique, because, of course, you're comparing discriminating features from knowns and unknowns. So it basically says all kinds of forensic, any kind of forensic discipline go after, even if it's not in the PCAST report.
0: And I think this falls into the the general category that a lot of critics uh uh seem to be taking same same thing with like the frontline episode from a couple of years ago where you know talk about the pcast report list all the things that were in it from dna to fingerprints to bite mark and then emphasize how bad bite marks are and then the the audience is left with you know the impression that uh, everything is as bad as bite marks.
1: Yeah, uh, that, that, you're right. No, it's, actually, that's an interesting uh, little magic strategy we do in the field of <laughs> magic as well. <laughs> as you suggest one thing, even though you don't say it. You suggest right, one right. thing, show one thing, and then when you show something else, they immediately transfer what they saw to one thing to another. So that's uh, a common psychological effect.
0: So, um, the next section here, um, step three, let's, let's say somehow the emotional argument didn't work. The judge, uh, what did it say about the judges? Oh, I love some of this stuff about the judges. Um, the judges just emotionally don't want to contradict their previous decisions. And oh, and, and, they, and they don't have the balls to basically disagree with their past decisions. And the judges have a pre-existing disdain for your client. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, then you know, because of all that, that's the only reason why they would let this crazy you know evidence into the courtroom. Um, then let's just let's try to limit the damage by limiting what the expert can testify to Uh, so he starts this uh section off by proposing a statement that a latent fingerprint examiner would make i have scientifically analyzed the defendant's known fingerprint and the fingerprint left by the bank robber in my expert opinion after scientific analysis the known and latent fingerprints are identical and exclude the possibility that the fingerprint left on the bank's countertop belongs to someone other than the defendant. Yep. Um, to me, this sounds foreign. This is, this, I mean, or old-fashioned. And sure. I'm, I'm sure that there are still some examiners that would testify to uh, something like this. Um, I'm confident that no, no one listening to this episode would, because they've listened to enough episodes where they know better. You know, where he goes uh, from there... Um, is emphasizing the parts that PCAST highlights as problematic and then pointing those out, um, mm-hmm. talking about the 100% certainty versus the error rates that have been shown in the scientific studies. You know, My viewpoint, my perspective, is that the, the talk of 100% certainty or 0% error rate or excluding all others is old fashioned. Granted, that may be the case in other uh, in other locales, but his setup here isn't going to work in all cases.
1: Yeah, and 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 you're right. I mean, and he does, but he unfortunately does the same thing that I think examiners back in let's say ten years ago, fifteen years ago, were doing as well, talking about their their personal certainty and then conflating that with actual error rates in these. Being you know being somewhat different here, right? Uh, he he also makes the well, I don't know if it's a deliberate mistake or not, but he does what I, I keep seeing is that rather than noting the upper bound uh, that it's an upper bound, just says the error rate for the study and he refers to he doesn't say it by name, but he refers to the black box study as you know basically one in three hundred, which was the upper bound. Says that was the misidentification rate. No. The the rate for that study was approximately one in seven hundred. Right. The upper bound was as high as and it's the same it's the same thing over and over. The P PCAST only gives the upper bound because they essentially say jurors are unlikely to really understand what confidence intervals are, and so their likelihoods just gravitate towards the lower bound. So you should just use an upper bound, and yet every attorney that reads this focuses on the upper bound doesn't understand what a confidence interval is the it's it's frustrating because every time we hear that we have to now back up and explain confidence intervals <laughs> and how <laughs> and and how they've misrepresented what the result of the study was
0: well and to go further here he talks about the error rates to be between Point three three percent, and yeah. again, that's from the PCAST reinterpreting and putting the upper bound, like you are talking about, on the black box paper, not from the black box paper itself, right. but from right. PCAST's choice in how to make the statistics dance. And then, but again, between point three three percent and nineteen percent, somewhere in, somewhere in there. Well, I went back to the because I was like nineteen, I. I this is a new number. I haven't seen this number before. I went back to Pcast and I was looking i mean I looked to the the specific page they referenced page ninety eight. I can't find nineteen percent there. I, I went through the whole i went I did like a number search for 19 and um you know went through the whole damn paper and can't find it i Do you know where nineteen's coming from? No, I just assumed that was bad math on the Miami Dade study. I mean, yes. The I, in my view, PCAST did bad math on the miami Dade study, but they didn't come up to nineteen. It, <laughs> it, yeah, it was a different wrong number. Um, or was it one in nine? It was 19? one in one in eighteen. Okay. So I'm not sure if he just added one in eighteen together. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not how math works. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. That's that's the number that PCast, in my opinion, wrongly states for the Miami Dade study. But how do you how do you get 19 percent out of that? I have no idea. So you know, this is where I really hit the proof. I'm like, okay, now you're just making up numbers, just making them up, uh, and, and putting them out there for uh, for for attorneys to go and uh, hopefully just get get slammed down when. Um, when asked, okay, here, show me in the PCAST report where it says nineteen percent, and um, it's just not there. Yeah, uh, un-
1: understood. So then, uh, then he goes on to discuss other cases where uh, limiting of opinion has happened. He mentions Judge. Uh, Koff, uh, Rakoff, R A K O F F, who we have discussed in past episodes, a long time ago. Right. He was the New York judge that quit uh, the National Forensic Science Commission oh, yeah. um, in, in a media flurry about you know that you know they're basically not doing what he thinks they should be doing, and, you know, a lot of attention was drawn to it, and then he comes back to it and and all this, but they mentioned his, one of his opinions where he limited the expert, saying, uh, in a firearms case in, uh, uh, USB Glynn, which, again, we had discussed in another, uh, previous podcast, uh, basically saying that, um, yeah, basically, all you can say is more likely than not when you find a matching bullet. That that's the that's what you should be able to say. Just simply more, more likely, likely than, not. than than not. Yeah, that's uh, that's
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's you know a, a little bit of an understatement. Come on,
1: I mean, you know, I I get. We've done this to ourselves I mean we our testimony was so ridiculous At one point I can think of 2001, 2002 Where our answers were just so Insane and unfounded To the exclusion of all others And no one else currently Who has ever lived Or ever will live I mean, Zero error rate uh, and, you know, If you follow this You'll never make a mistake all right, so we did this to ourselves. I mean, this is our punishment. Yeah, so I, it it may not be right. I don't I certainly don't support it, or agree with it. But this is the pendulum swinging the other way now for us. I, uh,
0: but yeah, you know, part of me is, to, is still wants to say, okay, overstatements. and now your understatement, obviously, right, right, um, right, but. For some of the IDs that are, you know, maybe 100 points, 10 print to 10 print.
1: More likely than not, dude. That's it.
0: No, But, I mean, sure, i sure infinity <laughs> is, is still an overstatement, but, man, that's that, that still seems kind of much closer to, to the upper end of what an ID is than this is to the lower end of what an ID is.
1: I you know in the case that we had here in Minnesota where Simon Cole had come in and said basically the same thing that if you're going to limit them limit them to either the defendant cannot be excluded as a potential source or you know more likely than not – or no no he didn't say it. he said or consistent with those are the two things he said it it's consistent with the defendant and even the judge kind of raised his eyebrows and turned to Simon Cole and said don't you think Dr Cole that you know, given you know the these characteristics, uh, you know that they can be a little more precise than that. That was what he asked. Don't you think they'd be a little more precise than that? And Cole said no, not not based on you know the the, the our current understanding of the science and what they may be able to demonstrate. That's the best they should be able to do. And Judge did by it. I mean, and, and he, you know he had his he had his radar up and. and you know, and Cedric had presented, of course, the you know, statistics and you know, some of the discriminability of these, these characteristics, and even the judge looked at it and went, they should be able to be a little more precise than that.
0: Yeah, a little bit. A little so bit. The, 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 going further on, they talk also about another case uh, out of Colorado, but um, I, I want to I get to the, the DNA part. So the, kind of at the bottom of this page, beginning of the next, he kind of seems to suggest that we can't say 100% certainty, but we should be able to before it would be allowed in uh, into a courtroom, and we don't have enough error rate studies. But this is why, quote now, this is why DNA experts can confidently speak to error rates. There have been a <laughs> slew of scientific studies conducted on DNA analysis to determine the probability. Of a mistaken identification. Oh, Voss. Mr. Voss. Oh, you did it. You made the the classic <sighs> error. Wow! Oh, Mr. Voss. I mean, okay. I can accept that we were wrong about some things in the past. But, man, that doesn't... I mean, that compels into the comparison to how wrong this paragraph is. Yep. Yeah. this is...
1: You know it it is amazing. I mean, I uh, why don't you and I just start writing law reviews? I mean, why can't we just read a few things and just start writing law reviews? And
0: just make up shit?
1: Well, I, apparently <laughs> I mean, there there's a reason why there's science and people that understand science can talk about science, but yeah, this is that classic mistake of error rates versus frequencies and
0: discriminability studies and population stats, etc. Well, let me go back to the, that sentence here to see what the reference was for that slew of scientific studies. Oh, there is no reference. He just <laughs> made it up. <laughs> uh, yes, because th- there there isn't a slew of scientific studies to determine the probability of a mistaken identification. That was kind of PCAST's point. That was kind of their point, and they talk about it a lot in that whole thing. They, they, they've they run population studies to see what the probability of finding specific alleles are in a specific population. Whether or not a DNA analyst then looks at the peaks on a piece of paper and interprets them correctly has nothing to do with their uh Frequency of those peaks in a population. Right, as we discussed in a previous episodes, <laughs> random match probabilities are not error oh, rates. This size. this is one that uh, Kohler got right last week because he he mentions this quite a bit last week. That was one of his main points. And exactly. um, so that that lay people and
1: jurors are likely to make that mistake. Apparently. <laughs> Also with, with attorneys, defense oh, attorneys. Well, also with right. this this author. Yeah. Oh, All right.
0: man. I was smiling at this point now, so yeah. just the range uh, of emotions. Polar, well, <laughs> you are a genius. Uh, okay, Glenn, step four. What's step four? All right,
1: well, step four is just shoot the expert on the stand. Just, well, I mean
0: that. Sort of. <laughs> well, I mean, he's talking I, about arsenals literally. and deadliest <laughs> weapons, so yes, shoot, shoot the expert on the stand. <laughs> that 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 will help.
1: Yeah, so step four is neutralize the expert for the jury and judge. So basically, if you can't get it completely excluded and you can't get them um, uh, limited, I, I like to refer to that as neutered testimony, where you get to talk about the exams you did and the methodology you use and show the matching features or non-matching features, but then ultimately don't allow them to give an opinion, neutering the, the the testimony, if you will. If you can't get any of those limits or exclusions on their testimony, then still bring up all these things uh, to basically diminish them for the jury that the jury needs to hear that mistakes can happen and have happened and that there are error rate studies that uh, need to be brought up and that even if they um, claim that they've never made a mistake before or they don't think they made a mistake in this case, jurors should still hear that um, mistakes are possible and that there are studies that have demonstrated errors occurred even from competent trained experts, which to this point, the way I'm saying it, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I, I welcome that. I, I, I welcome the discussion. I think jurors should hear about error rate studies and that errors do occasionally occur. And uh, if we know under what conditions they're more or less likely to occur, say complex cases versus non-complex cases, APHIS cases versus non-APHIS, I don't have any problems with that. I think that's all appropriate. Um, it's, I think, how he, uh, he how he frames it, right?
0: Well, the, the framing of it is: make sure you do a Daubert hearing ahead of time, so that uh, you can size up your um, your enemy. And once you get him into the courtroom in front of the jury, uh, then you then you know his weak spots, and uh, you can prod at his weaknesses. And since you 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 know best now, since you've already heard uh, him or her speak, um, whether or not the you know, how to prepare to attack him.
1: Yeah, he basically says it's not like you're going on a blind date. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what the person
0: sitting across from you at dinner is going to be like. Right. Um, so then, you know, hammer things home with the PCAST uh, report again uh, because, you know, how uh, PCAST, quote, enjoys a level of unparalleled respect within the scientific community. That's a big Nope. The 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 PCAST report has been criticized by by many people within the scientific community. All right, let's well, let's take this apart a couple of different ways here, right?
1: And then we got to get to the strategy if the expert hasn't read PCAST report, which I thought was pretty pretty fascinating. So, assuming that the expert has read PCAST, the strategy here is to get them to talk about error, the error rate studies that exist and how they essentially. essentially Relate to the
0: chance of error in this case, right? Right. I mean, it can give it an estimation, but it, it's uh, has limited applicability to a specific case. And but that's just what an error rate study is. I mean, that's no matter um, how it's designed, there is always a, going to be a a limitation from a error rate study to a specific criminal case or a specific. Real world, you don't know the ground truth answer. Case,
1: yeah. I mean, I really, I really struggle with this one personally because I don't. On the one hand, I do agree it's valuable information jurors should hear that errors occur and at some frequency, you know, based on these studies. The difficulty I have is that at in the case at hand, how do we generalize those error rates to the case at hand? Which I, I I don't believe about I, I'm not I can't believe I'm about to say these words and they're coming out of my mouth. In this way, I agree with Ralph Haber that I, hear, hear me out. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, breathe. There, breathe. Okay, go ahead. I I agree that we don't have enough data about error in casework to know exactly how generalizable those synthetic studies can transfer to casework data. In that, in that way, I agree. And then uh, how, how, how conditioned are, are they? Uh, do we really have good data, error rate data, on how those error rates change with the complexity of the case uh, if it's a proposed suspect versus APHIS? you know we we have some trends we have some some things that we have seen i i just don't know that we have the whole picture painted there so it's just it's an ambiguous thing uh, the philosophy and the spirit of it i think i agree with inform the jury errors happen and can happen and that there have been studies that show that they did happen i'm fine with all of that i just don't know how you make that leap to and so, therefore, the chance of error in this case is XYZ. I Y, Z. I don't think we have that.
0: Well, no, and I think that, you know, that is something to put into your testimony is when error rates come up, uh, discuss, uh, start discussing some of the black box studies and then state the error rates that occurred in the black box study with this set of um, exercises and with that specific right. uh, set of people at that time. My thought has always been to just usually just kind of leave it there and yeah, most yeah. most people aren't going to then f- do the follow up of well you know how does that all relate to to the case at hand there are some aspects of the studies that can provide a glimpse at what a estimated error rate might be in the field which is all they're looking for i mean that's going back to dobbert right estimated rate of error or approximate rate of error, so known or potential. Um, I, I I don't see how an error rate can be estimated for a specific case. It can only be in a broader sense. Even if, like uh, Kohler was saying, you know, you have these samples going through the lab, unknown to the practitioners that are actually testing the system, like in the medical field, like you wants. That's all. See, that's all happening. Even then, that would give a broad picture to everything, and not uh, to this specific case.
1: Sure. All right. So uh, then he goes on to discuss. Well, now suppose your expert hasn't uh, read PCAST or suggests that you know when you when you bring up PCAST or NAS. Um, He says, to avoid having to discuss these unflattering reports, a smart expert may wisely acknowledge only a passing acquaintance with them or assert total ignorance as to the report's existence. Now, this is something, again, we did discuss in, in previous podcasts that was happening in at least one part of the country where Brendan Max was dealing with some fingerprint examiners who were unfamiliar with the report hadn't read it didn't know anything about it and and so his strategy as a defense attorney was to of course go after the how can, how can you not know these reports since they are kind of important to your profession and so he uh, or um sorry the the author Voss in in this one says so what you should do is basically make them a part of your rule 16 request or even go so far as to give a copy to the examiner ahead of time, forward it to the, you know, to the examiner, right. copying the prosecutor, and say, please read this and be prepared to discuss this on the stand. I, I have not heard uh, – I have heard that um, theoretically in, in legal texts that, that they could do that. I've never seen that done. I've never seen that in practice or heard of anyone who's had that happen, not coming from defense. Uh, it's an interesting strategy. I'd love to know if any listeners has have ever been contacted from by defense and said, "Please read this and be prepared to discuss it." Essentially, on the stand,
0: there is a potential to, for that to backfire as well. Because uh, you know, we go back again a few years ago in the podcast, we talked about a case on the East Coast somewhere where uh, the um, the NAS report was uh, put uh, Washington DC was it DC? Okay. Yeah, was it, put forth it was as a learned, learned treatise. treatise. Yep, and yeah. you know, basically the latent and per examiner was like, "Nah, it's crap," and um, <laughs> and the, the the court basically just uh, refused to accept it as a learned treatise, and then wouldn't let the defense uh, talk about it.
1: Yeah, I I can see that this is a frustrating thing. That if an attorney has done all their homework and they're all prepared to bring it up, and the expert <laughs> goes, "Don't know what you're talking about." that you know this brendan brendan max has, has commented on that publicly a few times as well about just how frustrating that is that there isn't a standard that this is something that they that experts had i, I you know had to have read i i can i can understand voss's um issue here that would be frustrating
0: from you know my personality would be to be prepared uh, and if if someone said hey read this be prepared to talk about it on the stand my personality is going to be to know it better than he knows it but uh, you know other people may just take the other uh kind of road where their personality is just going to be like nope uh not going to read it and not going to talk about it and it all sounds like a bunch of crap to me so nope and yeah i uh, but that's I, that's not I, me I, but i can see that working too <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm, yeah, it works. I, I don't like. I mean, I don't like that. I, I think if you're claiming to be an expert in this field, you better, better know, know these. Stuff. Right. Better know these, and, and and should be prepared to discuss them. I, I would, I would be sad to hear that someone's claiming to be an expert and has not read or at least vaguely familiar with with the the, the treatise in in either of these. Right. You know, the main thesis in either of those. All right. So, however, uh, he goes on to say, "Let's say then, um, you know, that you're going through this, and if either the expert won't talk about PCAST or, or whatever your situation is, after the expert's on the stand, you have to bring in your own expert." And he's very clear here, and I, I, I get where he's coming from on this one, and I <laughs> want to talk to you about this because they, this this is, of course, what we have seen. Yep. He, he says. You don't want to get a fingerprint expert to come in on the stand. You want to get basically an academic, a law professor, a, a science professor at a local university, someone who's not in forensic science. You want to bring someone in who doesn't even know the methodology right. brings them in to talk some, about just some science. dude from the local community college. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, why don't you why don't you jump in there and I've got a couple of comments. Sure. What uh, do you think?
0: What I would, I would so much prefer talk to an actual expert, have them look at the evidence for the ones that are really actually innocent. Get an expert to look at the stuff. If there's an outside chance that the uh, the state's witness was wrong, an outside expert's going to be able to look at that and and you know u- usually, with a couple you know, obvious exceptions, you know see what the problem is and be able to help and you'll actually have then, you know, scientific background. Most of the time, it's not going to be wrong, so then you're left, yeah, yes, playing this game because, you know, an actual expert isn't going to come in and uh, dispute the testimony of the, uh, the state's expert. So I guess all you have left to do is just bring in someone who can kind of twist things around and, and, and try to get the, this emotional response.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you on the state's experts' work be checked by an independent expert. I think that's important. Um, most of the time, you know, our experiences reviewing private cases is that those conclusions were not in error. Uh, you know, occasionally you might find that you might disagree with the extent of their conclusion, but it's rare for, that I would find erroneous exclusions. Although. I have have seen them in in private case work. So assuming that, you know, the, you know, the government's you don't disagree with the government's conclusions, you know, I realize that this is the next strategy, but I really did wish that more attorneys would be willing to have those conclusions checked as opposed to, no, I'm just going to try to exclude the evidence. I mean, even today, I got, a call, I got called by a defense attorney saying, looking for someone to, you know, help me essentially in a Daubert challenge and an ex, you know, exclusion, and I said, I'm not your guy. I'm the guy they bring in when you raise the Daubert challenge, I'll be on the other side saying why <laughs> it's reliable. Right. And, and she seemed to understand where i was coming from i said however if you want me to look at the government's evidence and review it and be critical and you know put it through a linear sequential unmasking approach and a blinded verification and we'll look at very objectively and document it and be transparent and follow all the modern national standards happy to do that and i personally think it's a good idea to check those because as you say you want to make sure that, that it's accurate, right. and a, your, your local law professor can't do that. Yes, you can go for the, you know, this this strategy that they're talking in here, but, man, I, I, di- I, I agree with you. I think – I guess my bigger concern is not the inadmissibility of evidence, which, you know, gets you a name and gets your attention on your case and, you know, and, and gets you a little national recognition. I, I, I can't help – but go back to I would just rather accurate accurate conclusions be introduced by the government, and that the you know that we continue to focus on the accuracy of the evidence. But I realize that's not always part of their strategy. Yep, uh, I'm right there with you, man. Uh, adversarial system. What are you going to do? Exactly. Um, so one of the things that really struck me and made me chuckle, and you know, having come from other industries. Before forensic science and dealing with lots of academics, it's just, it just makes me laugh. It's, it's this concept that – and I'm just reading from the article. There are a host of academics who, while knowing little about the particular field in question, can educate a jury on the startling lack of reliability associated with the government's off- offered quote-unquote science. An academic from a local university will be well-versed on what makes science, quote-unquote, science, and what makes one scientific analysis more reliable than another. And I read that and went, uh, no, that's not been my experience. No. Um, in fact, my experience is, is the exact opposite, that academics and, um, like, some of the chemistry professors and folks I know in the university system um, – Their view on what is science and what isn't is very, very limited, and it comes down to, oh, well, if you have an instrument and it's reproducible by other people um, and, you know, you can run it through this instrument, well, that's objective, and because it's reproducible, that is good science. And... um, you know things like well, if you don't have a standard and that different people can disagree and it's a little bit subjective, you know, like fingerprints, which is really more of an art than a science. Well, then that's that's subjective and that's not real science. It's sort of pseudoscience. And 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 things like DNA because they have instruments and you know it's objective or chemical analysis that's objective because the instrumentation. Like it is such it is such a very narrow and. Um, unsophisticated view uninformed. Of yeah uninformed yeah it doesn't recognize the nuances of no no there's lots of subjectivity in science and that Chemistry professors interpreting mass spec, especially incomplete mass spec because yeah. of small amount of sample, includes a lot of subjectivity and including bias because they have an expectation of what molecule they're looking for. Yep. I mean all all these sorts of things that they'll recognize what good science is. No, no, actually uh, you'd be shocked. You'd be shocked at what goes on in a university setting and how – and again, I'm broad brush here. It's just my experience with – what is supposedly obvious science i don't know that if they're not engaged in these kinds of philosophical debates that are going on in forensic science about what is science and what is validation and what is you know um, what has met this these kind of rigorous tests i don't know that they are any better position than a layperson to talk about what is science and what is not science
0: and i, I think it it really comes down to where they're standing if they're in the biology department they're going to look down on psychology and sociology as not science if they're in the chemistry department then biology isn't science if they're in the physics department then chemistry isn't science and if they're in the math department then none of that crap's science uh it seems like most people think that people who do science have the scientific method you know framed on a picture on the wall in the laboratory they wear a white lab coat they mix colored liquids and then look back up on the sign to make sure they're going down to the next step. And it, that's.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm totally with you. And, and, it's and not science. It's, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's not. And they actually have a really often incorrect view of scientific philosophy, what a theory is and what a law is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, very, very surprising how. And, and I often admit this about myself 18 years of college courses, and I never learned in college. About science or scientific philosophy, or you know what, you know, defining what laws and theories were—that was all stuff I learned on my own in a forensic setting. Right. And getting into these kinds of legal discussions about scientific reliability—I mean, it's just—it's very, very surprising.
0: You went to college. You
1: you went to college for eighteen years. Yep. Damn, dude. (laughs) Have we never? We not discussed this? (laughs) No. Oh, yes, uh, yes, 18 years of college courses, yes. Holy crap. and crap. And, and not one of them ever sits you down and go, okay, this is this science. This is science, right. And this is how you do science. This is how you science it up. <laughs> the only, honestly, the only person who ever did that was Christophe Champeau. Right. Uh, and, and professors at University of Lausanne who really filled in some of the philosophical aspects of not just what science is, but what is forensic science. They truly taught me about the the philosophy of forensic science, but I didn't get any of that in in my hardcore
0: chemistry, math, physics in in college. Well, uh, one last thing here in the conclusion. Uh, He says we must employ real science to eviscerate the (laughs) avalanche of junk science that the PCAST report (laughs) so clearly exposes. The PCAST report did not do science. It reviewed other scientific articles, and it does not eviscerate anything, maybe except for bite marks, uh, but it does not eviscerate DNA or latent prints. Um, It does not clearly expose them, and it nowhere uses the term junk science anywhere in the hundred-some-odd pages of the entire paper. Uh, He's just making it up. He's advocating, uh, oh, zealously advocating. <laughs> Is that what you call it? All right, I maybe, maybe I got to go to college for another uh, fourteen years to <laughs> get that out. Um, okay, so uh, any final thoughts, Glenn? Well, I, I would encourage people
1: to read this because this likely—I I know this was making the rounds with some defense attorneys—and we've got a few, you know, attorney friends who listen to the show. We'd love to hear your opinions, Lisa. Yeah, we're talking to you. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Lisa. Send us, uh, yeah, send us an email. Let us know your thoughts as as a defense attorney, and uh, like, uh, wouldn't mind hearing from any other attorneys listening about uh, their thoughts about this article and how they might want to use this as as a strategy. I mean, I I think to attorneys you know they're going to pick this up and go god this is actually really good i really need to try these because at the end of the day the four steps i actually do agree with i mean if you're an attorney this would be what you make an emotional argument yeah try to exclude try to limit and then if neither of those work go through that in front of a jury to try to reduce the expert's credibility i again, uh, yeah, that's that that's the strategy
0: yeah i mean it, it makes sense but there there's definitely some issues in applying it, if you come up against someone who knows what they're talking about and you start throwing out things like DNA sure. probability studies on on error rates, uh, <laughs> it's just not going to work. Right. And
1: we probably should have led with this statement or been a little more clear. We are eviscerating this article on its accuracy. <laughs> not it's necessarily effectiveness as a strategy because as a strategy as an overarching strategy yep fine i get your point yep uh but we looked at this from the accuracy standpoint
0: right and that's just that's our perspective with with our our scientific mindset i think that's one of the big things i learned uh, in in college is how to how to read an article and start to notice the things that it leaves out or doesn't say or talks around. I don't know. That's how my brain now works when I read articles, even when they're obviously not have a scientific basis, but a lost uh, basis. Sure. Yeah. The critical review of, of literature. All right, Glenn. So uh, let's, uh, let's wrap this sucker up, uh, spread the word, let other people know about our, uh, our podcast, uh, especially I mean, like this one. It doesn't have to be specifically about latent print things, uh, other disciplines might uh, might enjoy and get uh, something interesting out of it. Uh, if you have any questions for us or any other comments about this, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com uh, Listen to us every week. Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, kind of back into the swing of things. Super excited about our, our big bump in numbers. Um, so uh, So keep listening and help us out with that. You know, rate us five stars on on iTunes or whatever thing that you're listening to this on. Uh, the opinions expressed here are ours, obviously, and not those of anybody else or any agency. Um, and uh, again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, check us out on Patreon.com. So with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.